Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak to experimental musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Shiva Fesharecki, who quite recently, back in September, curated an incredibly memorable live performance of Lee Gamble and Eliane Radig's music in a cave, no less, Great Mass and Cavern in Matlock Bath in Derbyshire. And I attended this gig. You had to get a cable car up to where the cave was. And then you were escorted down inside the cave by people in high-vis jackets, ducking and, and weaving just to avoid knocking your noggin on the cave ceiling, which got quite low at points. And then when you got inside, you had the dripping of water within the cave at all times. You had this gorgeous reverb, which I thought was going to be huge, but actually was really subtle. And there were premieres of Lee Gamble's music and Eliane Radig's music. And that Eliane Radig performance was amazing. I mean, I've seen her music performed a few times, but it's always been in really special places. And this definitely joins that selection of very treasured experiences I've had with her music live. But Shiva was really good fun to talk to. She doesn't actually connect with the idea of albums, so instead she picked three compositions, which was totally fine by me, and she's doubly excused because the way she talks about these pieces, I think, is so fascinating. I think she's got a lot of very interesting perspectives, both from the perspective of someone who practices deep listening and seems to connect with that idea very strongly, but also as someone who's a turntablist, and as we discuss throughout the podcast probably has quite little reverie for chronology within music and the ordering of tracks I guess is part of that chronology but yeah Shiva's fantastic so uh, you can check out her work over at um, SoundCloud uh, forward slash Shiva Fesharecki and Facebook as well again forward slash Shiva Fesharecki and also you can go to attentionmagazine.co.uk um, firstly, to read an interview I did with Shiva earlier this year, where you can hear me talk to her about various aspects of her craft. That was really interesting. And then also, if you go to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening, you can find all the notes for this episode, more information on Shiva's picks and where to find out more about her and listen to her music. So without further delay... Shiva Fesharaki on Crucial Listening. Hello, Shiva. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I wanted to start by discussing 
a show that you curated in September, um, which I attended and had a wonderful time and still think about very regularly, which is the show in a Great Masson Cavern in Matlock Bath. Um, Matlock Bath is lovely as well, actually. That was quite nice to check out. But um, I had a really incredible experience. I've loved Elian's music for a long time. Uh, it was so amazing as well to see Lee doing something acoustic. And the cave as well was totally not what I expected but in the most wonderful way <laughs> how was the experience for you after all that amassment of, of preparation and acoustic testing and shortlisting caves and and all of that yeah I mean it was a really fascinating experience for me because I learned so many new ways of working throughout that process and things that I hadn't done before you know from things such as um, working with Lee on his compositions trying to find um, some sort of language between the LCO players and Lee that was one thing that I found really enriching for me was trying to get into the heads of these two different types of musicians but then also other things such as you know the business side of things you know discussing budgets and um, liaising with all these different organizations um, in regards to the organizational side of things so um, it was really amazing but also a massive challenge you know handcrafting this project from scratch and all of the elements within it both artistic as well as um, logistical and all those things yeah I mean straddling that um, I guess between doing something that's um, intensely creative sounds like such a cliche but that and also um, negotiating the logistics of somewhere which I imagine has plenty of complications around health and safety and <laughs> all of that business I mean how did you find gathering that all together and like wearing both hats simultaneously <laughs> well it's funny because yeah the hardest challenge for me was definitely the sort of logistical and organizational side but it's also the most enriching because sometimes I could come you know I'd be doing fo really intense phone conversations about sort of finance and uh, health and safety and budgeting and then I'd be completely out of my depth with it but forcing myself to just be sort of strong and get through it and then afterwards <laughs> I'm sort of like yay I just you know I negotiated a deal with blah 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 but um, what was really cool about it was that I felt like especially the um, at the caves at the heights of Abraham um, that they were really incredible the staff there they'd never ever obviously done anything like that uh, before themselves I felt like everybody involved in the project it was a brand new experience for them from Alec Curtis who was the producer of the event actually helped me greatly with the organisation of it to allow for it to run so smoothly in the end but also the caves you know they had never done anything um, like that before um, Lee hadn't I certainly hadn't curated a, an event without having some sort of um, more compositional element within it so yeah it was just about I had this really strong idea of what I wanted to do artistically and it's one of those things where you just have to do it yourself because you devised this idea and this concept and I just really wanted to get this um, project off the ground, yeah. 
When you have an idea that strong, I'm curious as to how the actual manifestation of that experience was for you in comparison to that idea in your mind of what it may have been like as a listening experience. <laughs> it's it's an interesting one because for me the the main reason I even, you know, decided to pursue this uh, cave project was out of my just undying love and respect for the work of Eliane Radig and I think that was what made me pursue it and I just wanted to somehow be able to show my respects both as a musician and a listener to the work of this uh, amazing inspiring artist and the whole idea came from listening to Eliane Radig's music and hearing a lot of her acoustic work live and that's what brought me to want to pursue this project um, so it's always thinking about her it was always Eliane Radig at the forefront of my mind and that's what kept me sort of going and making me pursue this project yeah I mean her music has had such a profound impact on me and I think what's wonderful is you had the world premiere of that Ockham River piece and having never heard that piece before and not heard it since to have that listening experience forever shrouded in both the cave acoustics but also the splashes of water around me and um, the experience of being amongst a lot of other people all huddled together in that mouth of that cave is something that in a way whilst it was such a beautiful piece of music I'd almost like to preserve in my mind as that a kinship between the experience and composition there. Amazing, yeah, because actually one question I ask a lot, and actually I'd like to ask you, do you feel like um, your journey to the cave and the whole context and experience of the area and environment and the cave itself, do you think it enhanced your ex listening experience? Did, do you feel like it allowed you to listen on a deeper level? or? I mean, I, I'm so interested to know everyone's opinion to that, because that was one of the main reasons I wanted to... Um, do the project was to sort of test people's experiences of listening and experiencing the music of Eliane Radig. 100% I think it was almost like a recalibration you had like that 10 minute walk that was you know the descension into the cave and through that period there was a I guess probably now I think back to it probably a mental preparation I was doing and anticipating the music I was about to hear but also just um, probably stimulating my I guess my listening muscles <laughs> and getting myself ready and to have that long to just have a, a very slow introspection sort of dotted in amongst you know ducking my head to avoid the crags and stuff like that uh, I, I thought it was it was really rare. I've not had that long to prepare for a piece of music. And also to know that my one sole experience of going into that cave is to hear the music of two artists. And I don't know if I'll ever go to the cave again. Um, it was, you know, quite a journey up. Then I think that made it a, 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 an incredibly intense experience. And also as well, knowing the work that had gone into it as well, I think um, part of me was just very aware of how special it was to be in that circumstance. And all of that, I think amassed into just having a, a really good time, to be honest, and um, and you know listening very very intensely. Great answer. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm glad. That's that's wonderful to hear. I was I was really um, one thing I wasn't quite expecting was to to 
that so many people came from all across the country. It wasn't like um, there was a specific part of the country where people had travelled from. I mean, we we had people coming from Brighton and even Germany and uh, Leeds and Sheffield and... Uh, the local area. So I, one thing that really struck me in terms of my reflection was actually also s- seeing how far people had travelled, but also from such a variety of places as well to just all share this really intimate experience together. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it was it was super duper special. Um, and uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for putting that on. And I think, um, yeah, just having, yeah, I keep saying it, but basically just with Eliane's music, uh, you know, I've listened to it, I think, live in a church basement, a church and now a cave. So <laughs> it really adds to a nice run of live performance experiences that I've had with that. We should talk about some, well, usually we talk about some albums at this point, but obviously... Uh, Generally, I, I request that people come forward with three albums that they deem to be important to them. And your reply was that albums don't necessarily fit with the way that you think about music or that you interact with music. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, for several reasons, I'm not really an album-based listener. I mean, um, I think one of the reasons is because um, a lot of the music I love and I'm inspired by sort of the experimental fringes of classical music and it's not really album based music it's more sort of performance based music or singular compositions Um, but just generally I don't really I don't really think in terms of oh I love that album or and it might be for whatever reason but I think it's probably a mix of the genres I like but also I don't know when I think of favorite albums I wouldn't think of the reason I the reasons I like my favorite albums aren't necessarily because of the listening experience or um, it's more because I've been like a massive fan as a kid of of an album but it doesn't quite relate to me now or I don't know that sort of thing. Do you think any that's got anything to do with the fact that obviously being a turntablist that process involves having no reverie for track orderings or I guess the conventional chronology of um, how people present their work. Yeah, I feel it must be because of that and also, yeah, just because of the... I do so much live sampling and it's just... Um, it's often relatively irreverent as well. It's sort of, It will go from uh, one type of music to the other within you know a few seconds but the manipulations itself might might sound um consistent if that makes sense but um yeah I don't I think more about specific compositions or specific tracks and I've got a lot of like fond memories of specific experiences of hearing compositions for the first time or hearing tracks for the first time or buying records and there just being you know one track on it and a b-side and that sort of thing well let's dive in if you'd like to pick any one of them to start with Mm. and tell me a bit about why it's important to you as well uh i think i'll start with the james tenney for Anne rising 
because um, I've got I've got a lot to say about that. I think <laughs> <laughs> it was probably one of the first compositions that I heard from James Tenney, and James Tenney is one of my all-time favourite composers, and actually he's completely underrated. And the reason I chose this composition specifically is because I wanted to talk a bit about why James Tenney is such a spectacular influence on a lot of electronic artists, but also this composition itself being quite a, a special piece. Um, so yeah, those are the reasons I wanted to talk about this piece. But um, yeah, James Tenney um, was probably the first composer to be working with computerized sound um, and actually one of the first ever artists to use computers in art um, because he was collaborating at the Nokia Bell Labs in the early 60s so he was collaborating he was working there and collaborating with a lot of scientists and psychologists and um, this composition for Anne Rising um, is a really, really special composition in the sense that it's, it uses the shepherd tone. And I think a lot of us know what the shepherd tone is or have a perception of what the shepherd tone is. But mm. actually the history of it is that James Tenney uh, was the person who actually constructed and, and created the shepherd tone. You see, Roger Shepherd, who um, was an experimental psychologist that was also working at the Nokia Bell Labs in the 60s, um, approached James Tenney and asked him, can you create in sound something similar to the you know that staircase in um yeah the escher so the mc escher staircase so that's that constantly ascending stepwise ascension that's appears in the escher in terms of uh, graphic design uh, but in sound so it was kind of like roger shepherd approached james tenney who then um, started to conceptualise and actually create this constantly ascending idea of pitch. Um, so For Anne Rising is the first, first time that any musician has used the shepherd tone because James Tenney, in fact, created it. Um, so that's one of the main reasons I... I love this composition is because of the history behind it, because of this amazing collaboration that took place between a composer and a psychologist to be able to create what is now so widely used in, in electronic music, in dance music. And I feel like not many people understand the history of the shepherd tone um, and where it actually comes from. I had no idea that it was had such an elegant backstory of just being basically the staircase transposed into sound that's really satisfying <laughs> yeah it's really it's really fascinating for me because just because of the methodology that went into creating this this piece was so brand new both in terms of um, using uh, com computer processes but also yeah creating this concept and it was because James Tenney had such a 
uh, wide knowledge into other disciplines other than just sound and art. You know, he was just as much a scientist and interested in the psychology and physics behind um, music. And, you know, he was one of the first artists to be working with psychoacoustics, but actually when he was working with psychoacoustics, the term hadn't even been coined yet, it was psychophysics. And then because of his work predominantly, as well as his colleagues and collaborators, did the term psychoacoustics even um, develop, yeah. Wow. What I love as well is the fact that there is this scientific basis for it, or the scientific relationship that it has, but also I've seen people talk about, I guess, the emotional hues of the piece, like mm. Philip Corner talking about that it has to be optimistic because the alternative is for it to be plummeting endlessly down. Down, um, yeah, descending, yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> and also, yeah. I was going to say, you've talked about it as a love story as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, Anne uh, was James Tenney's uh, second wife, so, you know, he dedicated it to, to his wife, which is already, you know, uh, a suggestion... Of, of a romantic and attachment in that sense and um, yeah it's kind of like a love story I think it's beautiful in my mind slash really disconcerting <laughs> yes I was gonna say because there's a lot of talk of optimism and what I, I found was I'm currently having uh, a day where I feel like I'm chasing everything that I need to do on my to-do list and then so to have to listen to this piece as well and pick up a sonic analogy to the current state of how I feel like my day's going is has been um has been interesting and it's it's been nice to consider it within the frame of optimism but also just that I mean there's an eternal sense of imminence and urgency which I can't lie is pretty disconcerting as well yeah, absolutely. I think uh, James Tenney was really, really uh, focused on the listener's perception of his music, but more so also the idea of the composer and the artist being the sensory organs of society. So he, he was so focused on the idea of how people could, can have such different experiences and perceptions of the same composition in the case of Four and Rising you can actually choose to listen to it in so many different ways and have a completely different experience you know you could choose to pick out when you hear the tones rising and then you can actually switch that pattern around you know you, your brain decides you know you have control over how you hear this piece and you can completely transform your own perception of it depending on how you feel today, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in which case you might just hear an alarm over and over again. But um... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
if you'd like to um, introduce your second selection as well and uh, tell me a bit about why that one is important too. Yeah, so the Pauline Oliveras, um, it's is really special for me. I mean, Pauline Oliveras, again, is one of those composers that have had a massive influence just on my life, not even just on my music, but on my life. And just, in general, you know, her work spans so many different dimensions from her early electronic experimentations using tape and then also her beautiful accordion improvisations um, such as the one on this list and the reason I chose this one specifically was because last year I was teaching at the Junior Academy at the Royal Academy of Music and it was quite a random job for me to have because it, it came unexpectedly and I was teaching what they call in the really conventional classical music world. I was teaching my students general musicianship. And um, <laughs> general musicianship, um, in terms of the Royal Academy of Music, is, you know, there's a set cu curriculum in terms of, you know, students must learn how to dictate notation, have really, really specific oral training. And it's very, it's basically very, very... Um, a really specific type of music academia. But then I decided that this was my one opportunity to kind of work in quite a, a conventional context with students. And I wanted to completely transform the curric curriculum for them and make them question what it actually means to have musicianship and artistry. And I've, so I focused a lot on um, the work of Pauline Oliveris and the way... You know, she describes a lot to do with how the ear can't be trained. You can't train someone to listen in a specific way. That should come from within and through various explorations. So I wanted to kind of create different question marks and arguments for my students by introducing them to the work of composers that they would never have come across um, at a classical music institution. Um, so I was working a lot with them on the work of Pauline Oliveris, and they were getting extremely sort of into her work. And then what happened was um, during this time, she died. And she died the night before I was going to go and teach my students more about her work. Um, after, you know, we'd spent a whole term on her work, amongst other things. So I was just thinking, God, they're really into her music now, so I have to go and tell them that she's passed away. And what I did was I played this piece um, that's the, the um, accordion piece that you're about to hear on the podcast. And um, we kind of listened to it. It was, it was almost like she was providing the soundtrack to our tribute to her and we were all just like listening to this and I had to tell my kids that yeah she died and they were really really upset everyone had sort of tears in their eyes and I was thinking wow you know what was really special for me was that I felt like I'd introduced these students to this world of Pauline Oliveris and all the wonderful artistic explorations she's done and also huma humanitarian explorations she's done and and now it was my time to also, you know, you know, and then she died, and I, f I felt like we were. 
I was sharing a really moving experience with my students and it's probably the most enriching and also emotional, emotionally charged experience I've had in terms of teaching because I felt like I'd inspired these kids and then also they they were yeah anyway the reason why I chose this piece in particular was that I played it to my students the morning after Pauline Oliveris died and um, we all shared an experience together um, that felt quite special and it was the first time that these teenagers had experience of a composer dying during their life because normally the, the composers they'd learn about um, already dead, you know, Shostakovich's yeah. and the Brahms and so on and so forth. Wow. And did you get a sense of what they thought about her ideas? I guess that's a really interesting opportunity to have because anyone with whom I've discussed Pauline Oliveras has been someone who is already incredibly well-versed in Pauline Oliveros. Like people, it seems that people, if they're aware of their work, they're incredibly aware of her work because they get sucked in so quickly. And I know that's been something that's been the case for me as well. But did you get a sense of how these students felt about her ideas, having not had any experience of it before? Well, the first thing I that was said to me by um, my 14-year-old girl uh, student who was in my class when I said that Pauline Laversa died was she just went, what? I've got a deep listening folder on my phone with all her work in it and she just had like a deep listening folder with like anything that's related, not even just her music but anything related to deep listening concepts and I I found that that was that said a lot, you know, that she'd mm. done that. And and I thought that was really, really cool. And, yeah, it's... it's I think anyone that comes across the music of Pauline Oliveris um, gets immediately drawn into this world and this different perspective of thinking and listening and a world where sound is very much an interaction with all other physical aspects of life her whole philosophy was you know welcoming the world we exist in into music so um yeah i think you probably have largely answered my next question which was around the fact that i understand that you practice deep listening every day um i wanted to know why that practice is so important to you that it features on a daily basis and when you started doing that as well well, that that practice came very much out of being inspired and influenced by the work of Pauline Oliveras. And it's a bit like meditating. You know, a lot of people, I feel these days, are becoming more and more um, involved in meditation because, you know, we live in such a fast-paced world and everyone's constantly needing their phones or their electronic devices and meditation helps people just take a step back and I do I just basically do that but with listening so you know I take some time every day to just sit and listen deeply and just listen to everything that's going on around me and how that's how those sounds are interacting and anything interesting in that sense it's just a form of meditation, but with using listening and sound. Yeah, it's been something that I've been considering doing for a while now and not actually got on with it, which is just 
each day taking the time to turn the lights off before I go to bed and listen through an album um, mm. in a completely dedicated way because I'm very worried about listening becoming an accessory because I think that's such a, a temptation right now. It can be one of many browser windows. You can have something yeah. playing, you know, it is a bit troubling. Yeah, that's the thing, yeah. I've, I've noticed that, especially, you know, with, yeah, browser windows, isn't it, or streaming and that sort of thing. It can easily just become throwaway the way that other mm. elements are throwaway. But, yeah, I mean, y- the good thing about deep listening is you can do it any time as well. You know, I often... You know, sometimes I just do it on the tube or something. You know, I'm just listening to the the sounds of the tube and the 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 journey from one point to another, and how that movement, for example, of the tube taking me from Elephant Castle to Euston, what journey am I going through in terms of the sonics of that movement? Um, wow. So yeah, it can take any shape or form. should probably bring in your very last um, recommendation of your piece for people listening um, Shiva and I are aware, very aware of the Zoom recorder time left on Shiva's side which is putting a certain time pressure on us but um, Shiva if you'd like to introduce your very last piece uh, and tell me as well why that's important to you Yes, so the the last piece, yeah, so that's a track by Fotech. Um, and the really cool thing about this for me is more the, the story that's behind it. Um, when I was maybe about 12, 13 years ago, when I was a teenager, I was really getting into... That's when I was first getting into uh, working with turntables. And I was really... Um, I had a friend called Aidan who I went to uni with, who's in the first, was in my first year of, I was in my first year with him, and he was an amazing uh, DJ, and he'd put on a lot of parties and invite a lot of really amazing DJs to come and play. And I used to go to his house, um, several times a week for a period of time to use his decks to practice because what I decided I wanted to do was write a composition with many other instruments in it, um, acoustic instruments, but then also with electronic manipulations using turntables. I actually, the my first experience of devising my turntabling techniques was um, at my friend Aidan's house on the Essex Road, practicing on his decks when he was at work. And um, I was actually composing for him, so I was composing using his decks to then relay to him because he had so much more experience than um, I did. And then 
one time when we were working together we went and bought some records together on the Essex Road and one of the records we bought was this Fotec track which I then it had such a an effect on me and the experience of collaborating with Aidan to create this composition sampling this track it had such an effect on me that I continued sampling this Fotec track for another 10 years in every single composition I wrote so um, it had a really major impact on me I think it's to do with the timbral qualities and the ever-changing percussive nature but then it also reminds me of um, when I was a really young kid maybe um, sort of seven to ten year old and um, my much older brother who's about 10 years older than me um, was really really into jungle and drum and bass I mean the whole house would just be vibrating with the sounds <laughs> of drum and bass and jungle from his bedroom and I was right next door and I used to love it I loved it so much and I was so jealous because he was always at all the all the raves um, off the M25 and I was obviously too young as a small kid but um, you know that had a massive impact on me because um, he was playing a lot of Fotec and a lot of just other jungle and drum bass that was really inspiring for me I mean I just I could hear it I was listening to it basically on a daily basis from about the age of seven and that was probably because of my brother's influence um, wow. so yeah and do you still use it now in compositions? I don't anymore, but only recently. It's only been in the last maybe two, three years I've just stopped using it. But I've had quite um, a paradigm shift in the, in the way I use the turntables, whereas in the past I used to use turntables as a really physical um, way of creating live electronics for my scored compositions for orchestras and stuff like that. I now don't really use the turntables in that way anymore. I use them more, you know, solo and more in the form of sort of t solo turntabling and solo live sampling. So now my samples are, I, I guess, more varied. And I'm collecting a lot more records than I ever used to, just because I can afford to do it now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, must, it must have been interesting, though, like having something that I guess roots all the way back to your early experiences in music just existing within that work for so long i mean it's like a little i don't know like a, a thread just leading all the way back to your beginnings yeah i mean this track specifically i've had a few conversations with my brother about it and how he was like i was always playing this um this track and, and um then to have so many experiences of it in my adult life now as well because one of the reasons I wanted to sample this track over and over again was because I wanted to see how many different ways I could I could use it in completely different con contexts and for completely different outcomes so it, was, it kind of became a game for me you know I was like oh no I keep using it I keep using it and I think I must have used it hundreds of times in completely different ways and I don't think anyone ever really even noticed apart from me but it's kind of like my stamina test you know how many different ways can I manipulate this track I'm curious about that because it does almost feel like to hear about that it sounds like a retaliation against like I guess the fear of missing out in other experiences to mine a solitary piece of music for everything that it's worth rather than looking for opportunities 
elsewhere in the you know the ocean of information yeah it's it's funny that because it's it's almost like um there's two ways of thinking about that it's, it's sort of like if you're really inspired by by something you know you may want to sort of delve into that as much as possible and just exhaust as many as many creative avenues from it but also I think there was an element of me being really jealous of my brother who got to experience (laughs) all these amazing raves in the 90s whereas I was clearly too young to partake Um, but also you know a lot of my work has a lot of nostalgic elements I'm I'm always just being really nostalgic and everything I do is about my memories and my perceptions of of past events and how I can bring that into my present day. How are we doing for time, Shiva? I've got uh, five minutes. All right. I reckon I can do one more question then. Because I was going to ask about the fact that, I don't know, the relationship between duration that I think resides within all of these pieces. I feel like you've picked three pieces that could that feel as though they could go on longer than their, the limitations that's applied to them by the duration of the track itself. Like when you're midway through, I think there's a sense certainly in that James Tenney piece that could go on for eternity. But also, I think with Pauline Oliveros, I always experience like a a disregard for time and how long is left. And even that Fotec one seems to regenerate itself. I'm intrigued as to whether you've got any thoughts on why why that's a common thread. I know it's one that I've picked out, and I'm asking you yeah. to justify it. But <laughs> I'm wondering yeah, definitely. if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think duration only um, factors in time but the music I love also factors in space and occasion and perception um, to the maximum degree and I think all of these artists and all of these pieces that are part of this podcast I've chosen because they they look into the broader picture of sound and the broader picture of sound away from just the duration of time, that linear movement, but that that um, movement in space and occasion and environment is really important to me. And of course, um, that idea of the movement in our minds and the, the perception of sound. And I think all of these compositions have, have that in common and all of these artists have these bigger questions that they try and answer as they create their works well it's it's been really wonderful hearing about them that james tenney piece obviously i've heard shepherd tones before but it was amazing to hear about the origins of that um 
and also Fotech as well. I've been had a n sort of nagging curiosity to invest more time in more drum and bass, so that's been very nice for me as well. <laughs> but thank you so much for, for sharing your experiences and your stories about these, Shiva. It's been really great to hear about. Awesome, yeah, that's great. Thanks for having me. And if people want to find out what's going on with you in terms of what you've got on the horizon, is there a best place for them to be headed online? Yeah, definitely my music page on Facebook. That's where I um, keep everyone up to date with my upcoming projects. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. And to everyone listening, I will see you next time.